0: Hello there. A couple of things as we begin this morning. Uh, just a reminder, if you were planning on bringing any hygiene products or school supplies for me and Nate to take to Ukraine with us, we're leaving on Thursday, so you only got a couple of days to do that. Uh, we'll be accepting them up until then. You can shoot me or him a text or could just come to the office this week. We need friends, so we'd be happy to see you. Um, also, I will make one more plea, even though the bill did it a minute ago, it's just that we have our 10 a.m. loading tomorrow. The reason I'll make that plea again is because I feel like if we say it another time today, it sounds like begging, and we are begging. uh, Please come tomorrow, uh, and again, because we need friends, but also we need friends who will lift things, and we would like to have you there. Again, that's tomorrow at 10 a.m. We'd like to see you there. We are continuing our series again, talking about how the church in Israel are, or we can compare them, uh, and specifically some of the things that we see in the story of the Israelites that we can apply to today. As I was thinking about this particular lesson, uh, there were several different things that went through my mind, different ways we could go. And I think maybe just to kind of set everything up, we're going to have to do a lot of reading, and that's okay. Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with reading the Bible. But I, I think to maybe make some of the points that we need to make for ourselves today, we're going to have to read a lot of context to set up for the actual story that we're going to get into. So even though we're going to start today in Exodus 19, we're not really getting to our main text for several chapters. So stick with me for a few minutes because we want to set up what's going on here. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Because what we're going to deal with first is the idea of relationship. We read this verse just a minute ago. Thank you, Sam, for reading this. That was Sam, right? Thanks, Sam. Good job. Let's start in verse 1. I want to read it again just to make sure that we get the full idea of what's going on. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came out to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, And tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Stop here for just a minute. Look at what God is doing for the people of Israel. We remember what's happened up to this point. We've had a lesson or two that's addressed this context, talking about bringing the people out of the land, right? We've talked about how God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. They've seen the mighty power of God through the ten plagues. They've seen the mighty power of God through the parting of the Red Sea. God has saved them, and now he's got them on the other side of the Red Sea. He's got them in the wilderness of Sinai, and what does he say? He says, I want you to be my people. I want you to be in a covenant with me. Now to enter that covenant, listen. God says, if you are in a covenant with me, I'm going to make you a promise. And that promise is that you will be mine. You will be my people. You will be my possession. I think the translation that Sam read said special treasure. That's another way to translate that word. God wants a relationship with us in which we are devoted to. Holy and totally to Him. We belong to God. And that's what He's saying to the Israelites here. That's the kind of relationship that He wants to build with them. He says, Israel, if you want to be in a covenant with Me, you will belong to Me. You will be Mine. But listen to how it's conditional. This is not something that God is promising for all eternity, forever. This is how it will always be. He says, if you will obey my voice. And if you will keep my covenant. That's the first part of this condition. For Israel to be God's people, for Israel to be in a relationship with God, what do they have to do? They've got to agree to his rules. They've got to follow his laws. They've got to be completely and totally obedient to him. And if they do that, God says, you will be mine. Verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words, Moses, that you will speak to the sons of Israel. Now listen to how Israel responds to this. God says, I'm going to put you in a covenant with me. You can be my people if you follow my rules, if you obey me. And here's how Israel responds. Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. There's some confidence in that phrase, right? They have seen what God has done. They know His power. They know His glory. They know what He is capable of. And they want to be His. They want to be in this relationship. And so they say, okay, God, if you want to make this covenant with us, then we're going to do it. We're going to obey your rules. We are going to follow you. We want to be your people. Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. This is interesting here, too. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So, God has now heard the proclamation of Israel. God says, if you want to be in a covenant with me, you follow my covenant. You follow the rules and the the things that I set before you. And Israel says, we're going to do it. And God says, okay, we're, we're good. Let's go. Listen to what God says here. Go to the people, he says to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. This idea of consecration I think is really interesting, and it's something that you pick up on throughout the Old Testament and really throughout a lot more of Scripture than we realize. But this idea of consecration here is something very physical. God's going to go on and he's going to talk about the people consecrating themselves by washing their garments uh, and doing several things, setting boundaries, uh, and all of this to consecrate themselves. What does consecrate mean? Consecrate means two things. Number one, the word that this is derived from means to make themselves holy. Because if they're going to be in a covenant with God, if they're going to enter into a relationship with God, what do they have to be? They have to be holy. Now obviously, this holiness does not extend from themselves. They can't do this on their own. God has to tell Moses, you go and consecrate these people. You go and make them holy in my sight. And then we can enter into this covenant. But it means a second thing too. Consecration means to set something apart. It means to put it on the side and set it apart for a specific purpose. So God is pulling the Israelites out from the world around them and saying, I am setting you apart for a purpose. You will be my people, you will be my possession, and I am going to give you a purpose, a cause. And that's what consecration is. And so, for the next several verses, we're going to see God demonstrating a lot of his power, We're going to see God setting the boundaries around the mountain so that he can begin to do the things that he wants to do with Moses and set up this entire covenant. Look down at verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. So we've set all of this up. We're going to be in a relationship with each other. And now they get to meet God. And they stand at the foot of the mountain. Now look at what happens for the rest of this chapter. Mount Sinai is all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered with thunder. The Lord came down to Mount Sinai. To the top of the mountain, and the Lord called to Moses, or called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze. Many of them will perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain, and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So God immediately, as they begin their relationship, as they begin their covenant, begins to set boundaries. Because that's what you do in a relationship, right? That's what a healthy relationship should do. There should be boundaries between people. You know, There, there should be some places where we have some rules with each other. And so God immediately begins this. And look at, of course, we know what happens in chapter 20, right? We get the Ten Commandments. The very first laws that Israel gets for their covenant. We get all Ten Commandments, but then let's skip those and let's go down to about verse 22 of Exodus chapter 20. After God has given the Ten Commandments, the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from... Heaven, you shall not make other gods besides me. Now that sounds familiar. Why does that sound familiar? I skipped over the Ten Commandments a minute ago to point this out. Skip back to about verse 3 of chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above or on the earth, beneath or in the water under the earth. Twice in the same chapter... God doubles down on this idea. You shall not make other gods besides me. Almost like this kind of sums up everything about our relationship. If you want to be in a relationship with me, there shouldn't be anything that comes between us. There should not be anything that you make in my image to stand in my place. Because I am the only one. There is a uniqueness to this relationship. If you are going to be my people that I have called out, then I am going to be your God. No one else. So, God doubles down on the uniqueness of this relationship. You shall not make other gods beside me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourself. Instead, you shall make an altar of earth for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered. I will come and bless you. So, God's going to go on and talk about the singleness of this relationship. This is a relationship between him and his people, and no one else is allowed. Don't bring anything else into this. Now, for several chapters, and we won't read all of these, for several chapters now, God's going to give all of these laws. Of course, if you want to know more about them, Billy will tell you all, about the law, he'll he'll sit down with you for 16 weeks even and talk to you about the law. So if you want to know more about them, you can talk to about the laws of the servants that come up in chapter 21, or the laws about injuring people and animals, or the laws about property, or just the various laws that come up at the end of chapter 22. You got all of these things that God starts off their relationship with as he continues to say, okay, if you are going to be in a relationship with me, these are the rules of the covenant. You have to be obedient. Let's skip ahead just a little bit to chapter 23, and let's read down in verse 20. After God has given several of these laws, he's not done with the laws yet, but after he's given several of these laws, he says, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him. For he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. Listen to that. Do not be rebellious. Another key feature of this covenant. If you're going to be in a single, unique relationship with me, Israel, then when I say something, you obey. You don't go to the right or to the left. Do not be rebellious. You hold on to what I tell you to do. Look down in verse 24, though. You shall not worship their gods. Who's he talking about? He's talking about when they come into the promised land and all of the people who are there, all of the other religions, all of the idols that are going to be there. He says, when you get into that land, you shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. This is now God tripling down on this same law. He wants to point out that you are mine and I am your God, and there should be no one else. There are no other gods. Don't bring them in here. Now listen to the people. Let's pick up in chapter 24. God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come, to, they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice. All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. So God has tripled down on his no gods before me rule, right? And the people have now doubled down on their side of the relationship. Everything that God has said, we are going to do. Keep reading though. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the, of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be Obedient. So again, let's set this up. God triples down on you shall not have other gods before me. If you are in a relationship with me, it's just you and me. That's it. Nobody else. And the people triple down on their affirmation. Yes, God, you have said it. We will do it. So we get to the end of chapter 24. All of these conversations have gone on. All of these things have happened. The people know that they are in a covenant with God. The people know the commandments. The people know that they are going to have to follow these things so that they can be God's possession. And as we skip down to chapter 24, about verse 12, God says to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and I will give you the stone tablets with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. This is fascinating when you start reading. I'm not sure that I could necessarily be 100% positive on this, and you're welcome to correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like from what I read about the initial stone tablets of the commandments that Moses got, it seems like God put his finger to those tablets. God put his writing on those tablets. That's significant, and we'll talk about why in just a little bit. But God... Puts his, essentially, signature on this. God says, okay, we have a covenant, and now let's sign for it. Now I'm going to give you my covenant in writing. And so Moses goes up to the mountain, and it appears to the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses enters the midst of the cloud, and he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's pause there for just a minute, and let's think about what this tells us about a relationship with God. What we have learned just by looking at God's first covenant with Israel. God says, I will be your God. I want you to be my people. And if you want that, I will bless you. I will give you things. I will be your God. I will protect you. I will take care of you. All you have to do is be obedient to me. Do not be rebellious and consecrate yourselves. And what this tells us maybe about relationships with God is that to be in a relationship with God, you have to be totally devoted to him and you have to be totally devoted to holiness. God cares a lot about those things. God cares a lot about the uniqueness of this relationship. And so he's going to spend several chapters giving more laws, and these laws are going to deal with certain things that the Israelites need to do to keep themselves pure, to keep themselves holy in his sight, so that they can maintain this covenant with him. But that last phrase we read there just a minute ago, of course you're going to go on for several chapters and get law after law after law, but that last phrase we read there in chapter 24, Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And that's where we're going to pick up our story today. Chapter 32 of Exodus. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled. And they assembled with Aaron and they said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Stop right there. Hang on just a second. Do you mean to tell me that three times God says, if you want to be in a covenant with me, you will not have other gods before me. And three times the people say, yes, God, we will do everything you say. And almost as soon as the leader is gone and they start quivering in their boots because they haven't seen him in a little while, they say, you know what? We need another God. We need to break this covenant. Are you kidding me? Three times you said that. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early, and they offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's an interesting little phrase there, they rose up to play. If you read the uh, context of this, the connotations that come along with this, they weren't just throwing a football around and they weren't having a game night. What this seems to imply from the context of this word is that they were mocking the laws that God had given them. They weren't just rebelling against God by making another God. They were actually making a mockery of the things that God had given them to do. I mean, listen, they offer burnt offerings and they brought peace offerings. That's what God spends several chapters talking about before that. But now they're going to do this with their golden cow. And they're going to say, you know what, this is our God. They weren't just messing around here. They were making a mockery of God. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Another interesting word there, if you want to spend a little bit of time, the word corrupted maybe might be better translated as they are acting as though they have no law. They are acting as lawless people. Now that's an interesting word in that context because what has God just spent about 12 chapters doing? Giving them a law. A law for them to follow. A law that they said they would be obedient to. And now God says they are acting like that doesn't even exist. Another interesting facet of verse 7 here. Let's just pause and, and read this in its context. Remember how, when this whole thing starts in chapter 19... God says, if you want to be my people, I will make you my people. I will make you my treasured possession if you follow my law. After they've tripled down on all of this and they break the law, look at what God says. Go down at once for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. How powerful of a statement is that? That God no longer considers them His people in His mind. God says, Moses, these are your people now. I want you to hear for just a minute God's anger, God's extreme frustration in this moment. And I want you to hear something else too. And this is something that maybe we don't consider very much. God is hurt. He says, I've done all of this for you. I've made the way out of Egypt for you. I've protected you. I've taken care of you. I have chosen you as my people. I have given you the covenant and you broke it. God is hurt. We don't often think about God in this way. We think about God as an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving kind of being. But God is an emotional God. And I don't mean that like he's crazy and emotions all over the place. I mean that he is a God who has emotions which is, again, something that set him apart from all of the fake gods out there. Fake gods don't have emotions. Real God does. And we know this because how? We are created in his image, and we have emotions. We read through this passage, and we see God is angry. and God is hurt. Look at verse 8. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and they have worshipped it. And they've sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, if you didn't think God was hurt before now, if you didn't think God was angry before now, listen to what he says. I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now, leave me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them and I will make a great nation out of you. Do you think God doesn't get angry? Do you think God doesn't get hurt? Read that verse again. Have you ever been so angry that you have had to go away from people? Have you ever been so angry that you've wanted to go into another room and punch a wall? You got to get out of the presence of people because you are so mad, you are so upset, you are so hurt. You've got to be somewhere else. God says, Moses, leave me alone because I am so angry, I could destroy all of Israel right now. I could kill them all. And I'll just make a great nation out of you. God is angry. God is hurt. Another fascinating thing that we could just bring up here, we, we can skip down in this story just a little bit. This is where I'm picking up some of the, uh, the idea that I have about God's handiwork in verse 16. Well, let's start in verse 15. Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony of his hands. Tablets which were written on both sides. The tablets were God's work. And the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. I don't really know how that works. I can't really give you an exact representation of what that might look like. But I think it's interesting to note here. First of all, that God put some effort into making sure the Israelites had his handwriting on those tablets. God put some work into this so that they could have his signature on these tablets. But do you want to know something else interesting? Let's let's skip ahead in the story just a minute. We're going to come back, but let's skip ahead in the story in chapter 34. In chapter 34, after everything turns out, after all of this blows over and everything, God's going to give them... New tablets, right? God is going to give them something new to signify their covenant together. But let's skip down to verse 28 of Exodus 34. Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant of the Ten Commandments. Who wrote on those tablets? It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, And he was coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. These two tablets all of a sudden are a little different, aren't they? Now, instead of God writing on them, now they're in Moses' handwriting. Now they are written on by a human hand. You know what that says? This covenant now has taken a little bit of a different shape. Now, because of your rebellious attitude, because you are an obstinate people, this covenant is going to have to change a little bit. I think that's fascinating. That's something you can dive into just a little bit on the side if you want. But let's come back to the story here for just a minute. Moses is going to come to God and he's going to entreat God on the people's behalf. And, you know, just as a quick aside, as angry as God is talking about, you know, your people, Moses, Moses is going to come right back at God and say, hang on, God, these are your people. I, I don't want any part of this. These are your people who did this. Moses says, God, why does your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt? And he's going to go on and he's going to say, you know, God, if you destroy all of these people, then the Egyptians are going to say, well, you know, you must not be a very good God. Uh, You must not uh, be as powerful as you thought you were. Uh, And so, verse 14, the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. So, listen to this. Even in the midst of rebellion, even in the midst of his anger, God is still what? God is still a merciful God. God is still a graceful God. God. The Lord changed his mind about the harm that he would do to his people. Now let's skip down a little bit and let's look at Moses' next interaction with the people. Moses is going to come down. Uh, And as soon as he comes down to the camp, he's going to see this idol. He's going to see the dancing. He's going to see the mockery that they're making. And Moses' anger burned, and he throws the tablets from his hands and shatters them at the foot of the mountain. And he takes the calf, which they made, and he burns it with fire, and he grinds it into a powder, and he scatters it over the water, and he makes the people drink it. It's pretty disgusting, but I think it's powerful. I think Moses is, first of all, showing Is this the God that you want? Is this the God that you were going to give up your covenant for? Look at how easily he's destroyed. Look at how easily I can take him down. And now you're going to have to deal with it. You wanted this God, drink him. Moses said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? Did they offer you money? Did they offer you power? What did they give to you? And Aaron said, hang on, don't, don't be mad at me. You know the people, they are prone to evil. Now that's an interesting assessment by Aaron of the people of Israel. They are prone to evil. And maybe he's got a little bit of context for that. Maybe he's got a reason to think that. We've already talked about the complaints that came up right as soon as they got into the wilderness. So maybe he has a good reason for thinking that. But listen to his excuse here. For they said to me, make a God for us who will go before us for this man Moses the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said, whoever's got any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, I threw it in the fire, out came this calf. I think that scene is just hilarious if we're, just, if we're thinking through exactly what that conversation is. Moses walks down and he says, where did this calf come from? And Aaron's like, I don't know, I just put a bunch of gold into a fire and behold, there it was. What we start seeing here is the effects of rebellion. We start seeing the effects of what happens when people break their covenant. Now we're going to start blaming it on everybody else. Now we're going to start making up stories about it. And now we're going to start acting like it wasn't as bad as it was. Moses goes before God again. and He admits the sin. But God says, look at chapter 33 and verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst. You are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you along the way. God is still hurt. God is still upset. It takes until Exodus 34 to get the renewal. At the end of Exodus 33, Moses is going to come before God again and intercede on their behalf and say, God, I don't know how I'm supposed to go up there unless you are with us. Unless you're with me, I don't know what to do. Listen to what God says in Exodus 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses bows down and he says, if I found favor in your sight, come with us. After Moses begs for forgiveness, God says, okay, let's renew this covenant. Let's bring it back together and I will choose this people one more time. I will sanctify this people one more time. They can be holy one more time. So we've got this scene that begins with their relationship which turns into their rebellion, but still leads towards God's renewal. What does this mean for us today? Turn in your Bibles for just a minute to First Peter chapter 1. In First Peter chapter 1, Peter writing beginning in about verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves, also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. When we come into the New Covenant we enter into a new relationship with God. God consecrates us. This word here, this holiness that's discussed, is all that same word, all that same idea that comes from the idea of consecration in Exodus chapter 19. When we become Christians, when we become a part of God's church in the new covenant, we become consecrated. We become holy in the eyes of God because he has set us apart for something else. He has set us apart to be something different. He has set us apart for a purpose. Look down in chapter 2. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ, for this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for those, or for you who do, who believe. For those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. In this doom, to this doom, they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. To be in a covenant relationship with God, Today, the same restriction applies. To be in a covenant relationship with God, we have to be devoted to holiness. We have to be devoted to our unique, individual singleness of a relationship with God. There's not room for anybody else. We are set apart. We are different. There is not room for another God. There's not room for anything between us and Him. We are a royal priesthood. And I think it's interesting, so let's just read here for a minute. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and as strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Our conduct is supposed to be so different That people can look at us and say, that person is a child of God. That they can look at us and they can't bring anything before us. They can't bring an accusation against us because we are not rebellious people. Because we are not obstinate people. Instead, we are now people of God in this royal priesthood. And yet, what so often happens? I would say number one, one of the things that so often happens is we constantly verbally agree to the covenant, don't we? Just like Israel did, Israel affirms over and over again, God, we will follow your covenant. We will obey your laws. We will do what you say for us to do. And we do the same thing. We show up at church. We show up for Bible class. We show up for every church event there is. But, how do we live when we walk out that door? How do we live When we are not focused on the things of God. When we are not in some way forced to think about God. See, because when you're in these walls, you're kind of forced to think about God, right? You're forced to think about your Christianity because that's what we're talking about. That's what we're here to do. But what about when you're in your house on your own? What about when you're out with your friends who are not Christians? What about when I'm at work and when I'm doing things with people who aren't thinking about God? How does my relationship look then? Oftentimes, We verbally confess in this room that we are following God's law. But when we get out of this room, we become rebels. I think about this passage in James chapter 4. And we've talked a lot about James over the last year, at least I have. But coming to chapter 4 and verse 1, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. You commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We also have talked about before in James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say, I'm being tempted by God. God can't tempt people, but each one is tempted when he is carried away by his own desires. See, this is what happened to Israel, and this is what happens to us today. We make a lot of verbal confirmations in here, and we even do it sometimes. You know, sometimes we realize that I've done something wrong outside these doors, and we'll come forward and confess it. But then a lot of times, we leave these walls, and we don't even think about our confession. A lot of times, we leave these walls, and we don't think about God again until Wednesday night. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about the different sins that beset us. We could spend a lot of time talking about all of the things that come upon us that make us rebels, that make us break the covenant with God. But let me think about just for a second that phrase when we are drawn away by our own desires. Do you know there is nothing inherently sinful about desiring something? There is nothing inherently wrong with wanting to do something. But what often happens, first of all, is it leads us into desiring something sinful. Now that's wrong. If we are desiring something that is sinful, that's wrong. But sometimes we desire things that are pretty good. We desire what? More time with family. We desire what? More relaxation time. We desire a lot of good things. But what sometimes happens is those good things that we desire lead us away from God. A lot of times, we start placing things that aren't necessarily wrong in front of our relationship with God. I'll give you a few examples very briefly. I stay up late to do my homework, and I miss church on Sunday morning. There's nothing inherently wrong with doing my homework, but it broke my relationship with God that Sunday. I have been working hard all week, and I'm called in to work on Sundays. What am I going to do? what's more important to me at that moment. There are things in our lives that if we are not careful, are not wrong, but we start placing above our relationship with God. And at that point, what that becomes for us is just like what the golden calf became for the Israelites. Sometimes... We need to stop and assess. Are there things that I am doing that are not sinful, but are taking my time away from God? Are there things that I am doing that I am holding in the place of my relationship with God? When we sin, when we break our relationship with God in any way, whether it be through something that is directly we can point out sinful, or just something that is standing between us, and our relationship with God. Anytime that happens, and this is something that we need to focus on, this is something that we need to talk about, God is hurt. And so when we talk about our renewal, when we talk about mending that relationship with God, Israel had to to beg God for forgiveness. Multiple times. They had to come to God and beg him on their knees. Moses had to intercede for them multiple times before God said, okay, we'll renew the covenant. What I'm afraid a lot of us do nowadays is when we do rebel against God in any specific way and we realize it, a lot of times we think that just saying a little prayer is going to be it. And as long as, I, oh, no, I, I said something or did something I shouldn't have done, God, please forgive me. Folks, in a real relationship with God, there is a lot more to it than that. In Colossians chapter 3, we'll wrap up here, Paul talks about some of the things that go into the idea of renewal. He starts off and he, he talks about some of the things that we need to be looking at. He talks about some of the things that we need to be focused upon. He says, if you've been raised up with Christ, set your mind on the things that are above and then he goes on and he says in verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. All of these things that are outside of God, all of these things that can lead us away from God in some way, all of those amount to the same thing that happened to Israel. It is because of the th- these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Listen to that. When we sin, we incur God's wrath. God is hurt. God is upset. This is not some big invisible force in the sky when we sin. God is emotional. God is hurt. Paul says, in them you also once walked, but now you also put them all aside. He lists all of these horrible things. And then in verse 10, put on the new self who is being renewed to a true Knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Paul says if you want to be renewed, it's more than just saying a little prayer. It's more than just, I'm sorry, God, forgive me and move on. This is a life change even for us who may have been Christians for a long time. When we mess up, when we sin, it's not about just coming forward and leaving it here on the pew. It is about taking it outside the doors and living a new life. Because now we have renewed our covenant with God. There is so much that goes into our relationship with Him. There is so much that goes into when we sin. And there is so much that God feels when we hurt Him. But God is a God of grace. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of loving kindness. And He opens that door for renewal. If you've never entered that door today, you can start your covenant with God this morning by faith, repentance, confession, and baptism. You can accept that God wants to be your God. And you can accept His terms and say, God, I am going to enter into this covenant with you. And you can walk out of these doors and live that renewed life. Or this morning, if you've already done that, and you have sinned, and you have hurt God, this morning we can help you. Yes, it's important to come forward. Yes, it's important to confess. But we want to help you beyond that. We want to help you outside these doors. We want to help you walk in the covenant of God. And so if you need to make that confession and start that covenant anew, you have an opportunity to do so now as we stand and sing.
1: As I have sweetly rings over land and sea, bidding us for to realms above. While the light from the throne shines for you and me, let us listen to the call of love. Zion's call is ringing, coming from the throne above. While we hear it ringing, let us heed the call of love. While we below, there is work to do, and our street cometh from above. As we labor and wait, we must all be true. Let us listen to the call of love. Zion's call is ringing, coming from the... we